Hi, I'm Craig. And I'm Linda. And this is the Indie Travel Podcast at IndieTravelPodcast.com. This week it's episode 302 and we're talking about the Camino Primitivo. The Camino Primitivo is our favourite out of all of the way of St. James's or Caminos de Santiago so far. So if you're planning to do a Camino, we recommend this one. But definitely do a bit of preparation before you go. That's right. This episode's going to be a bit of a long one. We've already recorded the, the main feature and it's, yeah, it's not short. So... We are quite enthusiastic about it, but we also have quite a lot of tips to tell you. Today's episode is sponsored by Context Travel, who specialize in deep travel uh, around the world. So Linda, what is deep travel? What does that mean? Well, deep travel is kind of getting into a destination. It's immersive, it's transformative. The idea is to build cultural bridges. So the idea is that you go there and you are changed because of it, but you also change the place because of you being there. You know what I mean? So it doesn't just change places, it changes people. That's cool. We recently did a context travel tour around Madrid, and we'll be talking about that at the end of the show. Well, what have we been up to over the last uh, couple of weeks? Well, it's actually been a month because we... No way. Is yeah. it really? We, we intended, as you know, to have a podcast every two weeks, and we failed once again because, well, we were walking the Camino de Santiago, so my idea was to record it in advance and then and then put it up, but we just haven't had time, so... Uh, it's been a month since we last spoke, <laughs> and uh, since then we packed up our life in Alcalá de Henares, and we headed north with Janine to attend the uh, Aro Wine Festival, which basically means throwing lots of wine at each other and other people. Yeah, you might have heard of La Tomatina, which we were at several years ago, which is the world's biggest tomato throwing uh, festival. This is the world's biggest red wine throwing festival, and uh, it was something else. Actually, we recorded a bit of sound from the the festival in the town, so we'll play a bit of that for you now. Cool. After that, uh, after Aro, we went up to Oviedo and did the Camino that we just uh, are going to speak about in a few minutes. We went to a friend's wedding in Toledo, uh, back to Madrid for a few days, and then yesterday we jumped on a flight and came here to Berlin, and we'll be based in Berlin pretty much for the next month. But towards the end of that time, we'll be uh, heading down to Prague and then back up to the UK. Well, let's get on to the podcast itself. During the podcast, you'll hear a few sounds that we recorded along the way, including footsteps, a bit of a stream, uh, a recording of singing in the cathedral, as well as interviews with two pilgrims. So we hope you enjoy it. Today we're talking about the Camino de Santiago, and especially the Camino Primitivo, a 320-kilometer hike through Spain. We just finished our Camino in the last week. We were travelling with Janine, a friend of ours from New Zealand, and with dozens of others who we met along the way, either for a beer, for a morning's walk, or for a week. We've talked about the Camino before, well, various other Caminos that we've done. We've done the Camino Francaise, which goes from the border with, with France, and we've also done the Via de la Plata, which starts in Seville. And uh, you can find out more at IndieTravelPodcast.com slash Camino. Uh, for those that haven't heard our earlier podcast on the Camino, Linda, do you want to give us a little bit of background on the history and, and what it is? Sure. Well, the Camino de Santiago is a pilgrimage path. Basically, even before Christianity, people were walking to Finisterre, which was regarded as the end of the world. But uh, in about the 8th or ninth century, somehow, the legend goes, 
that the remains of St. James were transported to the coast of Spain in a stone boat. Now we're not quite sure how that happened, but they, they arrived and then a little bit later someone saw a rain of stars and his remains were discovered. And There's a lot of legend and kind of unsubstantiated legend in this, but anyway. I think hagiography is the term yeah, you're looking hagiography, for Hagiography, yes. Anyway, anyway, it was believed that his remains were found there. And King Alfonso uh, in the ninth century did the first Christian pilgrimage to the spot where they had been found. And he started in Oviedo, which is where we started our, our Camino. And this was the first Camino de Santiago. So he walked to the place where the remains were and he ordered a basilica to be built. Now, since then, millions of people have walked to Santiago. And uh, over time, various routes sprang up. And one of the most popular ones is the one I mentioned before, the Camino Frances, which goes from Roncesvalles on the border with France, uh, about, if you imagine a line across Spain, about 100 kilometers inland from the northern coast, goes all the way across, and it's about 1,000 kilometers. That's about 800. Well, it right, depends on where you start. Yeah. So we walked, for, when we did it in 2008, we started in Pamplona, and I think we ended up doing about 900 kilometers yeah, we took every single diversion we could. It was yeah. hilarious. The Camino Primitivo, though, starts at the Cathedral of San Salvador in Oviedo, and that's only around 300 kilometers away. So we estimated it was about 320 kilometers of hiking. And this time uh, I had terrible feet, and so we took almost no diversions and made the straightest path we possibly could uh, in order to actually get there and, and finish. The Cathedral of San Salvador in Oviedo uh, was a very, very popular visiting point or a stopping off point for medieval pilgrims. There was a saying that said, he who visits Santiago but not San Salvador visits the servant but not the Lord. So even if the people were coming in by the French way, at Leon that head north, I think it took about four or five days to get to Oviedo where they visited the cathedral, saw the face cloth and various other relics that were stored there and then head along the Camino Primitivo to Santiago. Yeah, when you say face cloth, this is the famous uh, face cloth that was meant to have covered the face of Jesus uh, after he was crucified, and they brought his body down and put it in the tomb. And uh, this was meant to be the wrapping cloth that covered his face. And uh, it's on display at the Cathedral in Oviedo, which we went and visited. Yeah, it was pretty impressive. They had this little room, it was quite small, but they had some really, really gorgeous reliquaries, including one that held the face cloth. And, I mean, these are really, really beautiful pieces of art, you know, gold inlaid with precious stones, amazing. And that was just in this one tiny little room, and that was quite apart from the museum that you could visit, where there was lots of religious art that was also spectacular. And being a Catholic pilgrimage, uh, the end point is a cathedral as well. Uh, the Cathedral of Santiago, where every day at midday they have a pilgrim mass that's especially for those that have uh, done their Camino or finished their pilgrimage. So here's a recording. Uh, we didn't take any recording during the mass itself. This is uh, the nuns that are teaching the, the call and response psalms that are going to be sung during the mass.
So the Camino is at its heart uh, a Catholic pilgrimage. It's a walk to the third holiest point in Christendom, or what was the third holiest point. I believe it still is after uh, Jerusalem and Rome. It certainly was in the medieval era Mm -hmm. when one report I read said it was responsible for the most migration of people anywhere in the world. Uh, was people going to and from Santiago for pilgrimage, which is absolutely mind-blowing. Mm. More than any economic situation, war, disease, uh, it was pilgrims walking to and from Santiago from all over Western Europe and as far away as Constantinople or modern-day Istanbul to uh, to go and do their pilgrimage there. Something I read along the way said that uh, the Camino de Santiago is what created the idea of Europe, which I think I could agree with because people were moving through and can you imagine if you're just in your own hometown and you're not moving you know nothing about what's happening in the next valley let alone the next country but if people are going away and then coming back with stories about what's what's out there that's what builds I don't know a global mind view so I mean yeah I could believe that the Camino built modern modern Europe wow that's a huge idea Mm. absolutely huge well, now it's uh, it's walked by hundreds of thousands of people every year uh, across multiple different tracks or caminos, and most of the people walking it now aren't doing it as a purely Catholic pilgrimage. They aren't doing it primarily as a religious act. That's right, yeah. I'd say most people these days are doing it either just for fun, to go hiking, or as a kind of semi-retreat. Quite a lot of people we talked to said, you know, they were having some trouble, maybe they got laid off work or they were a bit depressed or they just needed to find themselves. And they thought two weeks or four weeks or five weeks or whatever time they had was time for them just to to get away from it all. And I think that's a really good reason to do it. Yeah, all the time you're walking, you're meeting up with various people. And along the way, there's uh, places to stay, both private and municipal, kind of government-run albergues or hostels where you can find refuge from the sun during the day Mm -hmm. and a bunk bed to sleep on at night. Yeah, they're Um, they're called either albergues, which means hostel, or refugios, which is like a refuge. So they don't offer that many services, although we found it interesting because a lot of them offered Wi-Fi these days. That was really quite different to what we thought of as a refugio in the past, which was more like bed and roof and water. Yeah. Electricity, if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the the facilities are are growing to match the the growing tourism. Um, but yeah, so you're not walking by yourself, and you're not walking in an isolated area a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. You're walking from town to town, and there are towns that are popping up every anything between two and twelve kilometers. Yeah. You normally hit uh, either a, a collection of farmhouses, a small village with. 15 to 30 houses or uh, or a town and so what we'd often do is walk for a couple of hours stop for a coffee and then you'd be catching up with people that left half an hour before you and there'd be people coming up behind you so yeah so you'd have a chat and uh, you know get a little bit of trail gossip and then people would drift off again in, in new groups or by themselves as they finished up their their drinks and their snacks so we chose to do the Camino Primitivo. In the past, as I mentioned before, we did the Camino Frances, and uh, we've also done the Via de la Plata. And uh, we chose this one partly because, well, it was a two-week walk and we had two weeks, and uh, partly because we'd heard that it was really amazing in terms of landscape. 
and I think we chose well. What do you think? I mean, you had really terrible feet because your shoes broke and you didn't fix them. But uh, what did you think of the actual walk? Do you think it was worth doing? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think oh, I was definitely the the prettiest of all of the Caminos. Um, it had the least amount of road walking that mm, we've done on definitely. any of the ones in the past. Um, it had the the most countryside and even though we were passing through some rather how do you say fragrant farmland areas at hot points Mm. in the day um, I remember it being worse on the frances or passing smellier farms more often on the frances Mm -hmm. (laughs) might be more accurate we had a couple of small large hills really not small mountains to cross over and one of them was actually almost like hiking I felt like I did about 20 minutes of really technical walking mm-hmm. uh, going over the hospitales. Yeah, it was great. We had been warned that the Primitivo was the most difficult of the Caminos. And uh, we were choosing the route partly for ourselves and partly for Janine because she really wanted to do a Camino. And uh, so for months before we were talking about which one are we going to do, and we kind of had four choices. We could do the Camino Frances, we could do the Norte, we could do um, the Camino San Abres, which is the last part of the Via de la Plata, or we could do the Primitivo. And we chose against the Frances because we'd already done it, and also at this time of year it was going to be packed, 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 because it's the most popular route. The Norte, well, it was a good option, but the stages each day was going to be quite long, and also we quite wanted to do the whole thing from, from the border with France, so we thought, oh, you know, maybe it would be better to do that one later. The San Abres was our favourite so far, I'd say, um, but we had done it before, so... We were left with the Primitivo, which we were warned was really difficult. And yes, it was the most difficult of the Caminos we've done so far, but it was not difficult. No, compared with hiking in New Zealand, it was it was ridiculously easy. There was, there was no technical walking. There was no point where you had to worry about where you were putting your feet. Mm-hmm. There were no drop-offs or cliffs no. or nothing like that. It was, it was rolling hills. There are a couple of days down. where we had kind of up for an hour, you know, and you'd walk uphill and relatively steep for an hour and that was hard and you had to stop and you're puffing and that kind of thing or maybe half an hour or 20 minutes yeah. so I mean it was but, hiking right <laughs> but, but it was on a path that was three meters wide yeah I mean you know it wasn't uh it was it never dangerous it wasn't tricky in any way so when people tell you it's the most difficult um it stretches your endurance a little bit further but there's still plenty of I mean the longest we went without a cafe was about 20 kilometers Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's still plenty of infrastructure around. The path is super safe and super well marked. There's no, you know, there's no real problems or difficulties. So it makes it super accessible for people of all ages and even the most basic of fitness levels. I think so. Um, are able to do shorter stages mm-hmm. and and do the Camino. And it is an adaptable Camino. We talked to a lot of people who did the Camino del Norte and. In the Camino del Norte, you're a little bit more limited according to where you stay because there aren't so many places to stay, so you end up having to do the same stages as everyone else. But on the Primitivo, we thought there were going to be fewer places to stay than there actually were, and we, we had our stages all mapped out. We completely changed our plan. We had our, our well, I printed yeah, we, out some pages. We changed it daily as we changed well. Daily. There, there were so many options available. It just wasn't a problem at yeah, all. Yeah, that was something we didn't think was going to be possible, and it certainly was.
Great, so that uh, maybe hopefully gives you a taste of the Camino, uh, what it is and what this one was like. Let's uh, talk practicalities for a, a few minutes. What do people need to know before they go on a Camino? What steps do they need to take before they go on a Camino? I'd say the first thing to do, number one, is choose your route. So we've talked a little bit about the different Caminos de Santiago, and uh, you needed to consider what, how much time do you have? That was a big factor for us, because we knew we only had two weeks. Our friend Dave is going to do a Camino soon. He's got as much time as he needs. He's got four or five or six weeks. So it's a different consideration for him. Uh, you also want to consider the time of year. If you're going in winter, then you might not want to do one that crosses the Pyrenees or, or the Alps or something like that. Uh, you want to consider the weather. We, when we were looking at the Vila de la Plata, we didn't consider what the weather was going to be like in the middle of our route. We considered the beginning, we considered the end, but we didn't look at uh, what was happening in Extremadura. And it snowed, and it hailed, and we got rained on, <laughs> and it was just a bit difficult. And we just didn't have the resources for that. Yeah. So yeah, so choosing a route is definitely number one. Mm -hmm. Follow closely by consider carefully what you need to pack. The recommendation is take less than 10% of your body weight. So uh, if you're about 70 kilos, 80 kilos, you want to be taking around 7 to 8 kilos of stuff on your back. And that's quite possible. Yeah. Uh, with a, I think I, I bought specially for the Camino a 40 litre pack. It was 40 euros, I think. And uh, it, was, it was more than suitable. In there I had a sleeping bag. I had uh, our ultralight uh, plates and cups and a spork, pack of instant coffee for the mornings just to help that little kick, little kick, a spare pair of shorts, uh, two t-shirts and first aid toiletries kit and mm. um, yeah, yeah, socks, undies, You had your silk, silk sleeping bag liner as uh, well. Yeah, silk sleeping bag liner and uh, rain jacket and a pack cover and yeah, the, the charging gear for my phone and my laptop, which yeah. pushed me over the edge. That was what made it but, um, And also water yeah. bottles, that's important as well. I had, I had two water bottles, one on either side of my bag of about 500, 600 mils each. Craig had his platypus, which has the hydration system, a big hose. Yeah, that's, that's three litres. Yeah. So that is as heavy and light as I need it to be for the day. Mm -hmm. I think the most important thing to think about is clothes, because a lot of people pack far too many clothes. Mm. You need to consider, and, and the time of year is also going to be important for this, but uh, you need to consider what you're going to wear on your feet. So choose some good boots and break them in. Uh, good socks. I wore two pairs of socks at the beginning of the, of the hike, but I ended up getting a heat rash. So it depends on how you, how you work it, because if you just wear one pair of socks, you're more at risk of blisters. If you wear two, you get hot feet. And then apart from socks, you need either shorts or trousers. Janine had a skirt, actually. That was quite interesting. She said mm. it was really comfortable. Uh, two t-shirts, if you're a girl, sports bra, um, a hat or sunglasses or both. Yep. But you really only need two, two changes of clothes. That's so right. So two bottoms and two tops. Yeah, that was going to be my point. So you, you walk in one set of clothes. You get to your albergue mid-afternoon. Uh, you have a shower. You get changed into the other set. And you hand wash the other ones and hang them out to dry. And uh, most of the time, most of the year and most of Spain, things are going to dry mm -hmm. uh, before, well, overnight, uh, without a question. The yeah. only thing you might want to double up on is a, an extra pair of socks. Because you can put on slightly damp clothes mm -hmm. in the morning, but slightly damp socks is uh, 
a demotivator? I also took an extra couple of pairs of undies. I had four pairs of undies because walking in wet undies is just no fun. And, you know, I didn't need... I pr- probably three pairs of undies is more than enough. I took four, but I think that was the right decision. Also, talking about washing your clothes, a lot of the Alberta guys have washing machines. So if you're traveling with a group of people, you can combine together, put all of your clothes in yeah. and wash them. And for a couple of euros, you're done. Mm. Uh, before we move on, uh, talk a little bit about uh, what kind of guides you could be reading or uh, could be looking at buying. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of guides to choose from. Uh, in the past, we've used the Confraternity of St. James books, but we've found them quite heavy. Uh, the way they're printed, they're printed on just A4 paper, and uh, you can definitely get guides that are kind of more information dense. This time uh, I was looking online and I found all the information I needed actually online. Uh, There's a Spanish website from a a supermarket company of all things that provides really really good quality information called Orozki and um, what I did was I I downloaded the PDF of the Camino Primitivo and I took screenshots of the most important information from each page which was the topography and the distance between towns as well as a little map. And um, I put one of these, or two of these on one page, and uh, because there were 14 stages, 13 stages, I ended up with seven pages, and each day I just folded up and put it in my pocket. So it meant that I always had the information at hand. I'm not quite sure where, but I also found a list of all of the locations or towns along the route, along with uh, the distance from the previous place and the facilities in in each town. So whether there was an albergue or or a supermarket, or a restaurant, or a bar, along with some notes. So with those two pieces of information, as well as the PDF on my phone, that was pretty much all we needed. Yeah. Now, the ways, uh, all of the ways, are quite well marked Mm -hmm. with uh, scallop shell markers and yellow arrows being the two most popular uh, markers. So you don't need kind of walk 300 metres west, then turn left at the old oak tree kind of directions. You follow a well-trodden path with lots of other people Mm -hmm. uh, walking it each day, and uh, it's well-marked. So the kind of information that Linda's talking about, with an understanding of, uh, you know, your your time of year, your terrain, your weather, is really enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think having a topographical map, just, you know, basically just showing whether you're going to be going up or down or, or flat for a while, as well as the distance to the next town, is the most important thing. So you can plan where you're going to stop and where you're going to sleep each night. Mm. But you don't need really, really detailed information. Yeah, we combined that with an offline uh, map and GPS service, uh, Gaia Maps, on my phone, which was accurate probably to within about 5% uh, in terms of distance uh, because the GPS on a, on a cell phone isn't hyper-accurate. Sometimes it's like, oh, we've done two kilometres, we should be there by now. And we just had to walk an extra five minutes to get there. But mm-hmm. over the day, it kind of averaged out. Uh, but that was good enough as a kind of a backup and a guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clotilde was a French pilgrim who we traveled with for several days. And here at the end of the Camino, she reflects on the journey. This was your first Camino, right? Yes, exactly. What brought you to do the Camino? Hmm. I was not working anymore, so I had some time off. And I wanted to take some time alone, walking, try to think a little bit. So that was the perfect experience. Do you feel like it met your expectations? Oh yes, definitely. A lot of thinking. Mm -hmm. What did you enjoy most about the Camino? 
Um, the, the landscape were amazing. I took the Norte and the sea was really nice. And then on the Primitivo, it was really wild and quiet. I liked that very much. But I think the thing I liked the most was definitely the people I met. That's the right answer. Very good. <laughs> what made you decide to take the route that you made? Because so many people do the Camino Francaise and you did the Norte and then you changed the Primitivo. That's the answer is in the question is in the question. Mm-hmm. I took the Norte because so many people do the Francaise and I was kind of afraid it would be crowded and want, I wanted this quiet and alone time. So that's why I took the Norte. And after three weeks I thought maybe I could change and see some different landscape and try to do the Primitivo and not finish in the Norte. What did you not like about the Camino? I think what I found really hard on the Camino is uh, learning to let go of people because you work with some people and then at some point you make different decisions. Some people want to walk slowly, dot faster. So you have to just quit the people you met and that's really difficult. What is one thing you brought with you that was absolutely essential and you're so glad you brought with you? A big towel. I have a huge towel in my small backpack. It was so nice. That was my little thing. A small luxury, right? Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who is thinking about doing the Camino for the first time? Don't think too much. Just do it. Thanks, Clotilde. Okay, so we've talked about before the journey. What about during the journey? I guess the biggest thing is where you sleep and what you eat, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's it. So uh, we've talked earlier about the accommodation, the albergues, the refugios, and also the private accommodation. Uh, that you can get in pensions, B&B kind of accommodation. Hotels in some cities. Yeah, as well as uh, private albergues and refugios, which are more or less the same, but charge a bit more and are mm-hmm. for-profit instead of being funded by the council on a, on a donation basis. Um, so most of the time the albergues, you're paying for a place in a dorm room. And the dorms really vary widely. Uh, but it's not uncommon to have, say, 12 to 30 people in a dorm. On the French way and nearer the end of the route in the last 100, 150 kilometers, you get some some mega, mega dorms, which are like 200 people, just giant halls crammed with bunks. Uh, we tended to avoid those. There weren't that many on our route. I didn't um, remember any on the Primitivo, actually. Yeah, yeah. I remember them from the Francais, but we didn't run into any where we were. Uh, quite often on the Primitivo, there were fewer uh, municipal beds available than there were people walking. Mm-hmm. Often like 12 to 24 beds. And I would guess we had about 50 to 70 people within a couple of kilometers of each other and following a similar pacing to what we did. Yeah, so we found that if we wanted to stay in a municipal Alberta, we kind of had to get up a bit earlier and get started. And that was fine. But in some cases, it just wasn't going to work. I mean, there was one place that only had 10 beds, and there was no way we were going to get be one of the first 10, especially because sometimes people are staying ahead of you, and they're doing a shorter route, a shorter stage that day, and so they're going to get there first. We found it quite interesting, because on our previous Caminos, we had never reserved a bed ever. And in the municipal albergues, you can't reserve a bed. But on this one, because of the private albergues taking reservations, we ended up making lots of phone calls and reserving beds. And that was quite good because it meant we, we didn't have any stress during the day. We didn't have to worry about whether we were going to get a bed in the place we wanted to stay. It was all sorted and we just arrived, said our name and, and checked in. Yeah. But either way, even if you're staying in a, um, 
a private alberga, you're probably going to be sharing a room. So one thing that's really important to consider is being considerate. So if you go to bed late, go to bed quietly, make sure that your bag's all packed and ready to go for the morning. If you get up early, which a lot of people do, have your bag ready to go, pick it up and just, just leave. We found a lot of people were very noisy in the morning on this Camino and it was just really hard. Yeah, because people are trying to beat the heat of the day, uh, people are waking up anywhere between about 4.30 and 7am mm-hmm. um, and people are then, well everyone's normally out of the albergue by 8am. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you've got someone waking up at 5 and someone waking up at 7, that's a big time difference. So it's good practice and good manners if you are going to be one of those early risers to lift up your bag, take it all with you out into the out of the bedroom, into the, the common area like the kitchen or the lounge, and finish your packing there. Not spend 30 minutes rustling around with plastic bags. The other major thing with during the Camino is what you're eating and drinking. And as we've said, there's often bars and restaurants every kind of couple of kilometers but you also need to be aware that sometimes there's 15 or 20 k's with nothing and that's where your guide comes in really handy along with trail chatter and you know signs and advertisements that are posted along the way uh, to help you plan out your routes and the times where you need to buy food to carry it on to where you're sleeping. And depending on what your budget is you might prefer to do that. You might prefer to arrive in your accommodation go shopping, buy food to cook for dinner and food for lunch the next day as well as breakfast and and you're sorted. It does mean you have to carry more. We found it quite interesting this time because in the past we've quite often done exactly that, done a lot of shopping. This time we ate out most of the time I'd say. Yeah that's right. There's um, your typical menu del dias, your set lunches um, in Spain and these kind of get carried over into pilgrim meals along the Camino so they're often available in the evening as well where you'll get a three course fixed price uh, fixed offer meal and uh, it's really enough to keep going on you mm-hmm. can also get giant sandwiches for four to six euros or less 350 was quite with, a common price yeah, as well filled with ham and cheese and tortilla and oh, all sorts. Our, our standard kind of mid-morning snack was an enormous bocadillo so sandwich made out of kind of like a fat baguette they call it call it a barra filled with tortilla española which is uh, an omelette with potato and that was a really, really yeah. good walking Gets through. Your protein and carbs yeah. all sorted right there. That and, f- and, a, that and a beer at 9 o'clock mm. in the morning, that gets you going. Yeah, it was pretty good. Or- so, yeah, food is really easy. You're not having to plan days ahead. You're having to plan hours or kilometers ahead, which yeah. is uh, really handy. Uh, you'll want to have a basic first aid kit with you. Uh, some of the biggest issues on the Camino are obviously problems with uh, your feet, ankles, knees and all the tendons that run between there and uh, for people that have bags that are too heavy you start or bags that are ill-fitting you start to look at back problems and Mm -hmm. things. Uh, Your other major problems are uh, sunburn and dehydration Mm -hmm. Um, and then very, very occasionally like insect stings and stuff like that. Just a normal kind of risk you have while being outside. I had hay fever, not this time, but my last last Camino I had hay fever, so it was really good to have antihistamines with us. Uh, Someone got a bit of food poisoning, so we needed a lipoparamide. Ibuprofen is really, really useful for any kind of aches and pains or headaches. Make sure you've got a really well well prepared first aid kit 
we used a lot of things in our first aid kit. We had two bandages and we used them both. We used the ibuprofen and pyramid. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say something to, uh, yeah, something gets sun. So your, your sunscreen. Sunscreen is essential. Um, uh, Anti inflammatory painkiller. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you get injuries, you get blisters and you mm-hmm. get muscle aches. So we had um, stuff called flogoprofen, which is um, an ibuprofen like gel. an ibuprofen gel, yeah, that you just rub on and massage in. We had some radiocilial, which is uh, a liniment uh, mm-hmm. for like massaging into, into muscles, uh, which was sore. And uh, then we had things against blisters. So we had Compede. I'm not convinced it's the best it's a very thing, good solution. But it's a good a good short-term solution. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the longer... You, you become addicted to them because they soften up the skin. So the yeah. longer you use them, the longer you have to use them. I would recommend having a pack of Compete in your first aid kit. And also, we use Betadine to treat our blisters as well. So, But there are so many different ways of treating blisters. And <laughs> yeah, if you have definitely. had blisters and you have your way of treating them, do that. But it's quite funny talking about uh, medication right now because our next interviewee is Pablo. He's a pharmacist from Madrid, and he was on his second Camino. So uh, Linda caught up with him in Santiago. What did you like best about the Camino? I liked uh, to meet people from all over the world and also talk to the local people from the small villages, especially that. And what did you find difficult about the Camino? Mm, I found difficult uh, the long stages because they were, especially in the first days, very long long stages and with little supply points. That's mainly... And also the weather, which we had a heat wave this year, so that were the most difficult things. Only physical things, not mental. <laughs> Did you do a lot of thinking on the Camino? Yeah, a lot, a lot. I thought about my family and my friends, and my job, everything, and my future, my past, everything. Yeah. <laughs> Great. And uh, what advice would you give to someone who is thinking about doing the Camino for the first time? Uh, that's a hard question. Yeah, I would advise uh, to not be impressed by it. Take it uh, easy in the first days, especially, and follow her or his own pace. Yeah, that's what I would do. <laughs> I think that's really good advice. Thanks, Pablo. Well, the whole point of doing the Camino is to get to Santiago. The whole, no, what? No, the end point of the of the Camino is Santiago. Right, Santiago de Compostela, as it's also known, <laughs> is um, near the west coast of Spain, uh, up near the north, up above Portugal, and um, so once you get there, there's kind of a, a thing to do, right? So you go into the pilgrim office where you hand in your, your pilgrim passport, which has been stamped at each of your points of accommodation along the way. We should have mentioned that at the beginning, that you need to get your pilgrim passport before you start and get yeah. it stamped along the way. That's kind of important. That is. Mm. That is. Make sure you put those in the written show notes. I will. Um, and then, so you hand that in, and you get a, a certificate of completion of pilgrimage. And you can... This year, they had a new option where you could pay a couple of euros more um, it's it's free or why not donation to get your certificate of pilgrimage. They recommend a one or two euro donation. Then you could pay an extra three euros to get one with uh, 
the date, uh, the distance. sorry, the distance between your starting point and your finish point, uh, based on the official mm-hmm. lengths between towns. Um, so you could apply to to get that. One woman we met uh, had walked all the way from her hometown in Belgium, and so she had one that was like two thousand eight hundred, like two and a half thousand yeah. kilometers. Yeah. So that was totally worth it. We thought it was a bit sad to only do three hundred and twenty. Yeah, I was like, oh, oh, not really nah. worth it. <laughs> it was hilarious. Afterwards, we were in Acarunia, and um, Janine and I went for a massage. And I said to the masseuse, "Oh, you know, I've just done this Camino." And she said, "Oh, how long did you walk for?" And I was like, "Oh." You know, just two weeks. And she and, and her friend were both amazed. I said, how, how, how many kilometres was that? And I said, oh, only 320. And they're like, just, only, what? <laughs> because, you know, in Camino circles, it's, it, I don't know, people walk for as long as they walk for, and that could be five weeks, six weeks, two months, you know. And for us, two weeks just seemed a little bit short. However, it's important to remember that the Camino is as long as you make it, so whatever you choose to do is the right choice. Absolutely. Um, So every day, as we mentioned earlier, there's a 12 o'clock mass that goes on. And so we try and make it to at least one of those. One for the the closing ceremony, Mm -hmm. right? It feels like a completion. Yeah, you've made it, you've done it, this is the end. Yeah, it's a good chance to uh, keep your eyes out in the crowd for other people that you've walked with. And you can go and kind of catch up with them afterwards, which is great. If you're going to go, the mass starts at 12, but if you want a seat, you need to be there around 11 a.m. because it's standing room only every day of the week. After the mass, we go around and uh, join the queue. Depending on how fast you can move, the queues of of differing lengths, but uh, straight after mass is is a good time to go and uh, you can walk up behind the big statue of the Apostle St. James and uh, and give him a hug mm-hmm. and so you go and you go and hug the apostle and then you go down into the crypt and you can see the uh the silver casket which has has his remains um or someone's remains mm. but Some you know, remains. We'll, we'll go with faith mm-hmm. uh we'll go with his remains and then uh head on out for for lunch around one thirty two. yeah and we we quite often go to one particular restaurant called casa de manolo which is in the plaza de cervantes and, I mean, the food is okay, it's not spectacular, it's €9.50 for a menu del dia, which doesn't include wine, which was a bit disappointing. But it's really big, and you can make a reservation. I think we made a reservation for 12 this time, mm. 12 or 14 people, and you could fit four or five groups that size, which is quite uncommon for Spain. A lot of their restaurants are kind of six tables for four <laughs> yeah. people each, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a very pilgrim-friendly place to go for a, a last lunch or last dinner. So in your last couple of days on the Camino, you can... Uh, you know, talk to the people that are going to be arriving at around the same time that you're keen to catch up with mm-hmm. and go and have one last meal together, which uh, all together, you know, getting your Compostela, going and doing the Mass, giving uh, St. James a hug, and then going out to lunch with everyone puts a, a really nice finish mm-hmm. onto your Camino experience. Yeah. This time what we did was we stayed in Monte de Gozo the night before coming into Santiago, and that's only four and a half kilometers from the city. And I think that was a really good decision because it meant that we, we arrived there, we rested, we had a meal, and the next morning we got up, we only had an hour to walk into the city. We could check into our hotel, um, get our Compostela, go to Mass and everything. It was all easy. You know, we had the whole day, we were not completely exhausted, and I think that was a really good decision. Yeah, well, if you go from further back, I mean, your last three to five kilometres, you're walking through 
the industrial outskirts of the city and then the suburbs mm-hmm. and then it's not it's, the most beautiful it's it's not that pretty i mean you're walking through a modern the outskirts of a modern city right and then you get into the center so for me it's nice to do that in the morning i've got energy instead of as the last five kilometers of after a, a long day 20 to 30 kilometer day when yeah. you just want it to finish yeah um it's, it's a very big change in, in mindset. Yeah. So after you arrive in Santiago and you have a slice of Tarta de Santiago, which is an almond cake that is definitely worth trying, what do you do next? Well, you can keep walking if you want to. You can go on to Finisterre, which is about another three or four days hike. It's about 100 kilometers. And you can also go to Mushia, which is another um, coastal town. If you go to either of those places, you'll get another certificate of completion because they are both regarded as endpoints of the Camino. And we did it after our first Camino in 2008, and I'd recommend it. But oh, if it's you, very pretty. It's great. The problem I had was that I'd kind of seen Santiago as the endpoint, and then suddenly we're continuing the next day to keep walking. So I was quite tired. I'd recommend having a couple of days in Santiago before you do that if you do decide to continue. Mm. Santiago's a major transport hub as well. So you have a a very good train station for Galicia with mm-hmm. lots of good connections. You have the airport, uh, you have connections down into Portugal uh, as well as back into Madrid and the big international airports. Uh, there's I mean, direct flights from various places in Europe, straight in and out of Santiago, and also just up the road in Acarunha, mm-hmm. just down the road in Porto in Portugal. So there's lots of options for either continuing your journey in the Iberian Peninsula or jumping straight out to somewhere else. So thanks to uh, Clotilde and Pablo for coming on the show, and thanks also to uh, the rest of the Smurfs, uh, <laughs> Janine, Gabrielle, and Nancy. It was uh, a really special time, very personally challenging for me. I think that was my biggest takeaway from this one, was being sore from day one and learning in myself about how I deal with that pain and how I process it mm-hmm. and uh, you know that bloody determination and oh, <laughs> stubbornness about um, how about you what was your big uh, kind of your big takeaway or a magic moment or something special that stands out I had a couple of things I learned a lot about myself uh, I learned that well I need to be around more people I was able to be a lot more extroverted on this Camino than I have been recently because it's just been the two of us and so that was really good I learned that apparently I'm a good organizer I thought that I had done a lot less organization for this Camino than I had in the past but somehow I was the organizer of the group and I got a reputation for that so that was really interesting and I also got a lot more confidence um, for speaking on the phone in Spanish things like that and I feel a lot better about my Spanish which is now very good so yeah I just I don't know, I, I discovered some things about myself that I had either not known or that I'd forgotten. And that was really good. Nice. Oh, that's the uh, Camino Primitivo. Thanks for listening this far. It's been a bit longer than usual and Linda already cut down, I don't know, probably about 10 minutes of the uh, the feature. So Yeah, I spent some time I, on it. <laughs> but if you made it this far, you've obviously enjoyed it. There's a whole lot more resources at IndieTravelPodcast.com slash Camino. And after this gets published, we'll, uh, we'll update the page with uh, this information as well. And don't forget, you can get in touch with us if you have any questions about the Camino in particular or travel in general. 
yeah, just make a comment on the show notes or mail at IndieTravelPodcast.com. This episode of the Indie Travel Podcast is sponsored by Context Travel, and we really enjoyed the tour we did with them in Madrid. Uh, we did the Madrid Through the Centuries tour, and uh, we really, really enjoyed it because the docent, uh, Clara, was a really wonderful guide. She was very informative, and uh, any question I asked her, she had an answer for. So I think that was really good. It was quite different to other tours we've been on where, you know, they kind of had their script and, and went through it. We found it really interesting just to be able to go, oh, what's that statue over there? And then she had a five-minute talk about that statue over there that wasn't actually <laughs> included in the tour at all. Yeah, and why on earth did the Spanish uh, king choose, choose Madrid? That was my big question, because there were all of these cities around Madrid which were reasonably powerful at the time, but unfortunately no one knows. So we've got someone that works as a tour guide, has, I think uh, she said a PhD in art history, mm -hmm. works for the Ministry of Culture, uh, doing educational work for museums as well, and she can't answer the question, you know you've got a good question, right? It was a very good question. <laughs> so all of the, the docents or guides are art historians or historians, and uh, they offer all sorts of cultural walks relating to food, history, art in Madrid, all sorts of things. And there's also excursions to Toledo and Seville and various other places. So if you're interested in um, doing a tour in Madrid, go to contexttravel.com slash Madrid. Yeah, and uh, they have heaps of other locations. We really enjoyed it. It was really in-depth and uh, ticked all the boxes. So contexttravel.com and check them out. Well, we are having to pack up our hotel room because we had a bit of a disaster yesterday. We were actually getting on the plane. We were in the airbridge, walking towards the plane when the phone rang. And it was the hotel that we'd booked here in, in Berlin saying that our booking had been cancelled. So that was awesome. And uh, we, we frantically tried to rebook it. It didn't work. And uh, so we flew to Berlin, arrived, called the hotel to say, has it really been cancelled? It had really been cancelled. So we booked one night in a you know, a brand name hotel, which is where we are now. But uh, we've decided to move on to a different place for the next three nights before going to house it out in the, uh, the outskirts. So I was going to say the WAPs, but, you know, that might not be the most uh, global <laughs> of words. <laughs> so, yeah, so a um, bit of an adventure. It, it happens. Yeah, it sure does. But the next few days should be fun. Uh, we're in central Berlin. Uh, so if you hear this soon after it's been published and you're around, let us know. Uh, but we'll be in and out of uh, the centre of town over the next three or four weeks. And uh, yeah, we'll just be catching up with friends, doing a little bit of tourist stuff and uh, having fun. Yeah, so if you're around, get in touch. But until next time, travel well.